Turn with me in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 4. We are coming towards the end of this letter. Um, Probably finish it at the end of the year. Um, So, but um, we're rounding off and towards the end as we look at uh, final instructions from the Apostle Paul. Um, So read with me for the sake of context. I'm going to read from verse 17 of chapter 3 down to uh, verse 3 of chapter 4. Brothers, join in following my example and look for those who walk according to the pattern you have in us. For many walk of whom I often told you and now tell you even crying as enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their stomach, and glory is in their shame, who set their thoughts on earthly things. For our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of His glory, by His working through which He is able even to subject All things to himself. Therefore, my brothers, loved and longed for, my joy and crown, in this way stand firm in the Lord, my beloved. I urge Euodia and I urge Syntyche to think the same way in the Lord. Indeed, I ask you also, genuine companion, help these women who have contended together alongside of me in the gospel, with also Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we come to these few verses towards the end of Paul's letter to the church at Philippi, help us to understand what he was trying to convey to them in either explicit instructions and exhortations or just uh, implicit uh, commands and principles of wisdom. Please guide us. Please open up our hearts and our minds to understand, to receive your word with gladness. Please help us to glean wisdom, to remember these principles and the applications and implications of it. Please guide me as I preach your word. I pray that my words would be your words and your words would go forth in power and precision to impact the hearts and minds of your people for your glory. Christ's name we pray. Amen. As we've been going over uh, chapter 3 for the past uh, month or so, probably even longer, um, we've been seeing that uh, the Apostle Paul begins chapter 3 of his letter to the Philippians by saying, Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. And, And that's really almost a halfway point of this letter, and he says, finally. And as we read through Scripture, we see these uh, terms, uh, almost a a conjunction or a transition point, such as finally or therefore or um, in the case of or or something that connects... um, what's coming ahead with what has gone before. And we see that Paul is given this instruction to the Philippians in chapter 3 and verse 1 to rejoice in the Lord. And he will expound upon that all throughout chapter 3 and then even in chapter 4 as he says again in in verse 4 of chapter 4, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. And so a lot of what he is saying in chapter 3 and in chapter 4 is expounding upon this principle of rejoicing in the Lord and how it is a safeguard for us against uh, false teaching, those false teachings of, on one hand, legalism as uh, he he's, uh addresses uh, those Judaizers who are trying to call the Philippians back into a, a works righteousness of trusting in their own deeds and, and even in maybe their own heritage or uh, 
uh, their knowledge, but then he also addresses those uh, antinomians or uh, those that are uh, licentious, those that um, believe in a, a cheap grace that they've been, because they've been saved by grace and, and not of works, that they can go and, and live however they want. And so he addresses both errors and calls the Philippians to rejoice in the Lord, but more than that, to uh, press on towards Christ's likeness. That that is, in a sense, the, the, the goal of the Christian life, is to be Christ-like. That we are, are saved by Christ and by Christ alone and, and His works, His sacrifice, but that He has also redeemed us for a purpose. That He's redeemed us to, to uh, save a people for His own possession, to remake us, to recreate us as sinful human beings in His likeness likeness of the, the perfect man. And that we are to rejoice in him, in him alone. And also, as Paul says in verse 1 of chapter 4, that we are to stand firm in him. And so, as Paul comes to chapter 4, he says this great therefore, we have to understand everything that comes before it. But particularly, Almost all of chapter 3, as it's almost a sandwich uh, of between uh, verse 1 of chapter 3 and, and, and uh, verse 1 of chapter 4. But then there's, as we see sometimes in Scripture, that the chapter divisions and the verse divisions don't always make sense. And sometimes it's, it's kind of it's hard to decide you know, where we would put this. And, and, and these chapter and verse divisions, they, they didn't come until probably the mid-1500s. And, and there was, in a sense, a slight changes um, since then. Um, but nonetheless, the, the, the person who originally did it, he did a pretty good job, probably better than most of us would do. But we come to places like this, and it's almost as if uh, verse 1 of chapter 4 should be verse 22 of chapter 3. But I think that it pairs with verse, verses 2 and 3 also because there's something that he wants to uh, tell us and, and, and explain to us, explain to the Philippians in, in terms of rejoicing in the Lord and standing firm in the Lord based on what he has said in chapter 3. One commentator, he writes this, he says that Philippians 3.1 to 4.1 begins a second major movement of thought in the letter and develops the theme of steadfastness originally introduced in, in uh, verse 27 to 30 of chapter 1. Because of this earlier mention of opponents to the gospel, it is not so surprising that Paul makes a sharp transition in 3.1 to confront the lurking doctrinal dangers of legalism in verses 2 to 16 of chapter 3, and licentiousness in verses 17 to 21 of chapter 3, before concluding the section in 4.1. His own example of putting no confidence in the flesh, but rather wholly identifying with Christ, is the means by which his readers can stand firm against either menace to the gospel and Christian experience. And so he calls them to... Stand firm in the Lord. And in this passage, as we look at verses 1 to 3, Paul gives the Philippians three exhortations which directly contribute to their faithfulness and effectiveness as a church in contending together for the faith and the advancement of the gospel. Three exhortations here in these verses, one in each verse in the strong verbs that he uh, conveys to the Philippians. And his first exhortation being his exhortation for corporate perseverance. His exhortation for corporate perseverance that the believers in Philippi would stand firm in the Lord. Corporate perseverance. Perseverance as a church, as a body. He says, therefore my brothers loved and longed for my joy and crown in this way stand, stand firm in the Lord. My beloved. 
And this exhortation to stand firm is based in two things. First, it's based in the call of the gospel. And the call of the gospel to be conformed to Christ. As he says, stand firm in the Lord. And it's, it's one thing to tell somebody to stand firm, to hold on, to persevere, to buck up, to uh, put your chin up, to suck it up, or whatever phrase we hear and we speak to others to help them to persevere and stand firm in our culture. But it's another thing to say, stand firm in the Lord. He's pointing them back to the Lord Jesus Christ and all that He is, all that He has done, and all that He has promised to them in the gospel. But also their purpose in the Christian life is that they are called to be one with Christ. That that is the goal, that we are to be conformed into His image, and that that, um, conformity begins at salvation. As He redeems us and regenerates us, Um, through the power of the Holy Spirit and that He, through the rest of our life here on earth, that we are being sanctified and and we are to work out our salvation with fear and trembling for it is God who works in us, as Paul says in chapter 2. That we are being conformed into His image and so because of that, we stand firm in Him, focusing on Him. But also... This exhortation is based in the call of the gospel in the sense that we are called into one body because there's this corporate sense of this exhortation to stand firm in the Lord. It's not just the individuals, but he says, therefore, my brothers, all of them, to stand firm in the Lord. We are called into one body. And there's a parallel passage for this would be Ephesians 4. As we look through the, these prison epistles, as um, we looked at Colossians several months ago, and now we're in Philippians, and, and uh, there's this sense of parallel between those two, but also with Ephesians. It says a lot of the same things, and he, in a sense, uh, expounds a little bit more on this principle of being called into one body in Ephesians 4, where he says this, he says, Therefore, uh, also linking back to his, his um, explanation of the gospel and, and, and salvation and the establishment of the church. He says this in Ephesians 4, 1, Therefore I, the prisoner in the Lord, exhort you to walk worthy of the calling with which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, being diligent to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as also you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. And we're called into one body. We're called to be one with Christ. And, and that calling, part of that calling is mean, uh, is means that we need to persevere in that calling. We need to stand firm in that calling. We need to resist the, the urge to, uh, to be uh, divided. And so he calls them to stand firm in the Lord because of that calling. But also, this exhortation is based in the call of the gospel in the sense that we are called to contend together for the faith, that, that our faith doesn't j- just uh, begin and end with us, that it is a faith that is to not only be shared and, and, and spread, but is to be manifested in our lives and how we live, that we are to live in such a way that we are different, but also that we uh, display our faith in, in our words and our thoughts and our attitudes and our actions. And there is a sense that, as uh, I read from that one uh, commentator, that Paul is um, linking back to his uh, instructions in verse 27 of chapter 1, where he says, Only live your, manner, live your lives in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear about your circumstances, that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, 
contending together for the faith of the gospel. And it's almost as if he comes to uh, verse 1 of chapter 4 and he reiterates that, but, but uh, approaches that principle or teaches that principle from a different uh, angle or, or a different stance, expounds on it in a different way. One commentator, he writes this, he says, This Greek word that underlines the verb to stand firm, stakete, was often used to describe a soldier standing his post. Here it is a military command, which is the dominant expression of verses 1 to 9 in chapter 4. To stand firm as a, a soldier, this picture of soldiers standing in formation and uh, we can kind of understand it in our day and age of, of soldiers marching in formation, but it was um, even more um, significant in the, the Greco-Roman world as they fought with swords and shields and they had to uh, stand firm, not only stand their ground, but to stand together and to form what had, the Greeks had, had called a, a phalanx. That they were linked together, swords and shields and spears. And, and not only were they linked together and moving as one, but they had to consistently and gradually march forward to gain ground in that phalanx, not to break ranks, but there to stand firm. There's a couple of different places that uh, Paul would say the same thing, that we read this same exhortation, this uh, same command in the New Testament. Probably the most notable one is in 1 Corinthians 16. And at the end of that letter, he tells the Corinthians, he says, Be watchful. Stand firm in the faith. Act like men. Be strong. Let all that you do be done in love. This, this uh, concept of, of being vigilant, of persevering, of being watchful that... Um, for not only your enemy, but for uh, dangers that may, uh, may hinder your walk or may, um, may take you off the path. And then to act like men, to be strong, this concept of being courageous, being brave, um, being resolute. And then let all that you do be done in love. It's kind of what he's getting at here in, in verse 1 of chapter 4. That they are to stand firm in the love in, in the Lord, because in a sense they are loved and longed for. They are beloved, which gets us to this, the the second um, aspect of this exhortation for corporate perseverance. It's first, it's based in the call of the gospel, and second, this exhortation is based in their relationships. It's based in their relationships, as Paul begins. By saying, therefore, my brothers, loved and longed for, my joy and crown in this way, stand firm in the Lord. He gives these, uh, I guess, uh, adjectives or, or just um, adverbs, these, these, uh, these words, these terms of endearment. Loved and longed for, my joy and crown, my Beloved, but I think the, the primary uh, qualifier here in this statement to stand firm is in the Lord. And so this, this exhortation to stand firm, it, it begins first and foremost with their relationship with Jesus Christ. That they are in the Lord and that, that whatever may happen in this life, whatever uh, trial or challenge may come to remember that they are in the Lord. And, and if they're in the Lord, and anybody who is in the Lord, then whatever this life may bring you, it cannot destroy your faith. It, it, it cannot um, take away what the Lord has done. And so that's where all our hope, our, our joy is. But more than that, that we are to stand firm in what He has done and what He is continuing to do that he has saved us and he is sanctifying us and he will glorify us but also of his promises his promises of heaven his promises of return to rule and reign in righteousness to uh, destroy all his enemies to recreate this world 
And so we stand firm, we, we persevere in, in one body based on our relationship with Jesus Christ, but also this exhortation is not just based in their relationship to the Lord, but also their relationship with Paul. As he calls them, brothers. My brothers. And we, we use that term, brother or sister, and it is fitting. But I know uh, for some of us, um, we've heard that term used in different contexts. I've heard that term you know, used in either in sports teams or the military or other social contexts, brother. Um, uh, but it has a deeper meaning here, deeper than even our, our uh, biological familial relationships with uh, literal brothers and sisters, that we have been bought by the blood of Christ and been adopted into his family. And so we are brothers, but we are, all, Paul also says that, that uh, to the Philippians and, and by extension to all believers that they are loved and longed for. My beloved, that he cares for them and he labors for them. And then there's this term, my joy and crown. My joy, my, I, I, I delight in you. I delight in, in what God is doing in your life. And this term, crown. There's a couple different uh, terms for crown in, in the Greek language, but this specific term, it refers to uh, the, the wreath that the uh, athletes would gain uh, for winning a contest, uh, winning a race, or uh, uh, Competing in the games, this wreath that um, a contender, uh, an athlete, would win, and he he alludes to this in First uh, Corinthians nine as he talks about running the race and running to win, and, and in a sense that the Philippians, their faith, their advancement in the faith, are in a sense his crown. His crown because of the work, because of his efforts to uh, plant that church, to cultivate that church, to build them up in the Lord. And so this exhortation for corporate per perseverance, it's, it's based in uh, their relationship to Jesus Christ, their relationship with Paul, but also their relationship with one another. That they are beloved, they are uh, loved and longed for, and, and that's how they should, in a sense, relate to one another. If Paul relates to them that way, and, and just as he says uh, earlier, to follow his example, they are to relate to one another that way as well. That's how they will persevere. That's how they will stand firm by being one, by being cohesive, by being united because of their relationship with one another. He says something similarly to uh, the Thessalonians, which some commentators would say that the Philippians, the, the church at Philippi was Paul's favorite church, and some would say, the, no, it was the Thessalonians. And you could go either way reading those letters. It's kind of hard to say. And we only have these small letters, so we don't really know. And it's kind of like asking a parent who's your favorite child. Um, but nonetheless, we can see from both letters, both churches, that they were good churches, and even the Thessalonians, we, we don't see much in the way of rebuke, but we see a lot of commendation and uh, uh, encouragement. He says this to Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians 3, and verses 6 to 8, he says, but now that Timothy has come to us from you, and has brought us good news of your faith and love, and that you always remember us kindly, longing to see us just as we also long to see you. For this reason, brothers, in all our distress and affliction, we were comforted about you through your faith. For now we really live if you stand firm in the Lord. It's almost the same thing that he says here in Philippians 4.1, that he longs to, to, to see them, just as they long to see 
him and Timothy in that they're comforted about them through their faith and, and, uh, and they rejoice in the sense that if they're standing firm in the Lord. And he encourages them to continue in that. And so we have here in uh, verse 1 of chapter 4, Paul's exhortation for corporate perseverance and standing firm in the Lord based on, in the call of the gospel and based in their relationships. And then second, we get this second exhortation, Paul's exhortation for interpersonal unity. For interpersonal unity as he almost uh, goes, it almost seems as if he goes off topic here. And he says this in verse 2, I urge Yodia and I urge Syntyche to think the same way in the Lord. And then he'll expound upon that in, in, in verse 3 in, in another exhortation. But it's almost as if verse 2 and 3 are in a weird spot here in chapter 4. It, it's almost as if we would see this better put more towards the end in his final greetings. But there's this exhortation to stand firm in the Lord, and then he addresses these two women, and then there's more instructions. Verse 4, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. And so I, I think it's, it's really um, connected and intimately linked to his exhortation in verse 1, but also in verse 3, that this is all linked together. And flows together. This exhortation for interpersonal unity. That these two women would think the same way in the Lord. And we also have this phrase, in the Lord. Which it connects also, is, is related also to his exhortation to stand firm in the Lord. And here in this exhortation for interpersonal unity, there's this specific sense, this particular sense... But there's also an implied sense of this exhortation. So we have his specific exhortation for Euodia and Syntyche, but we also have his implicit exhortation for everyone else. Because as we read this exhortation to Euodia and Syntyche, and we try to understand it, it should also convict us and compel us in the way we relate to one another and especially in the body. That we should strive for interpersonal unity. And as he talks about these two women, we don't know much about them. There, there's a couple, uh, couple uh, identifying uh, marks of, of their relationship to him in verse 3. And their relationship to one another, as he says in verse 3, that to uh, this genuine companion to help these women who have contended together alongside of me in the gospel with also Clement and the rest of my fellow workers. And so there's, a, uh, there's history with these two women and the Apostle Paul that they have contended together with him. They have worked alongside of him in the advancement of the gospel in ministry. They have ministered alongside of him. These are not immature believers. They're mature believers. They have done works. They have helped in the establishment of this church. And it may be that they were among the original women who Paul found at the riverside when he first came to Philippi, that there was this group of women praying, meeting at the riverside, praying because they had, did not have enough um, men in Philippi, enough Jewish men to establish a synagogue. And so they met by the river as uh, Jews did during the exile in Babylon. And so this is, was their custom to meet by the river to pray. And this is where Paul met them and, and, and uh Proclaim the gospel to Lydia, and it's quite possible that Yodia and Syntyche were there. They probably were. And they helped Paul in establishing this church. But yet now there is some uh, dispute amongst them. 
There's, there's something that they're not uh, agreeing with. We don't know precisely what that is, but he just off the cuff says, I urge Yodia and I urge Syntyche to think the same way in the Lord. And, and the weight of this, the significance of this exhortation comes in the sense that he names them. He calls them out by name. This letter was written, uh, given to um, Epaphroditus to go to the church. And, and it's, it's probably Epaphroditus that had explained this, this strife amongst them or this disagreement amongst them. That when Epaphroditus came to Rome, and he, he's probably um, uh, telling Paul everything that's going on in the church. And he's like, oh yeah, you remember Euodia? You remember Syntyche? Yeah, they're not getting along at all. Yeah, it's pretty bad. And so we don't know how bad it was, but bad enough that Paul includes them by name in this letter. And so there's some weight to that. And also a sense that they used to, they, they were mature believers. They, they ministered alongside the Apostle Paul. And so th these aren't new believers. These aren't immature believers but they're probably acting immature. And so he calls them to think the same way. And once again, in the Lord. To think of, according to the Lord, according to Jesus, according to what he has done and what he has commanded, according to his word, not according to their own desires or opinions or understanding of the way the church is or the way it should be run. <clears throat> And as we consider these two women and Paul's exhortation to them, we can think of, you know, the common disagreements in church life. About people who, well, you know, they shouldn't be in that position. They shouldn't be teaching or they, they shouldn't be serving there or, um, you know, uh, uh, they shouldn't be given so much influence or, you know, or just the way certain ministries are run. Uh, you know, I don't, I don't, they have the wrong idea about outreach or evangelism or that's not the way to do it or they have the wrong idea about children's church or uh, Sunday school or whatever it is. And, and right or wrong, because it, it's, it's quite possible that <clears throat> they were both right in whatever their disagreement was, but they were a little bit off. Or, or maybe the way they were approaching one another was wrong. Maybe, maybe they both had good opinions and good ideas, being mature believers. But just the, the outworking of their ideas may have been off. They, they may have been you know, speaking the truth, but not speaking it in love towards one another. And, and there is a possibility that, that their disagreement would spill over and create further division and discord in the church. And so Paul addresses it. He, he's, he's, in a sense, nipping it in the bud, telling them to, in a sense, that <clears throat> you need to humble yourselves. You need to obey the one another commands. You need to obey these commands for unity of going to one another. These commands, in a sense, that we read in Matthew 18, uh, these commands for church discipline, that if your brother or your sister has something against you, you are to go to them one-on-one -on -one privately and deal with it. And then if that doesn't work, then you bring another brother or sister along to help you. And then if that doesn't work, then you go to step three and you bring it before the whole church. And so there's almost a sense that this is maybe an application or maybe an implication of a discipline issue. That they're not getting along and the church knows about it because Epaphroditus, or at least Epaphroditus knows about it. Now Paul knows about it and now he's calling them as if this is the second step of church discipline. But almost the third step because this letter is being read to the whole church. That you need to think the same way in the Lord. And so there's some weight to this. 
There's some significance to this. They were being called out in front of the whole church to agree with one another, to solve their differences. And so we need to feel that weight that in Scripture, beginning with Jesus himself, there is this command for church discipline, that we are to practice church discipline when a believer, a member of the church, is not living according to commands. And, and yes, it, it's almost always in the, the context of grievous immorality and grievous sins, but it can be something as slight as a disagreement that spills over into uh, just strong discord and strife that affects the whole body. And the goal of this is unity and holiness of love for one another. And so Paul calls them out. And as he calls him out with this specific exhortation to interpersonal unity, there's also, second, this implicit exhortation for unity. That that even though the rest of the church he did not name, they would feel it. Just as, you know, any of us who have sat in church in the midst of a discipline case and the pastor has read somebody's name. That has an impact on the whole church. I know every time I've, and it's only been a few times, thankfully, in my Christian life, but hearing somebody's name be brought before a church, that that causes me to sit up a little bit straighter. You know, causes me to, to watch my own life, to examine my own life. And that's, I think, Paul, part of Paul calling them out. There's this implicit exhortation to interpersonal unity as, as well, that we are all to strive to agree in the Lord. We are all commanded to think of others as more important than ourselves. As Paul says in Philippians 2, which is this passage, you can turn there, just probably just one page over, Philippians 2, is he calls them to unity. And then he points to Christ and he says in Philippians 2 and verse 1 to 4, he says, Therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion fulfill my joy that you think the same way. Same thing he says to Yodia and Syntyche. Think the same way by maintaining the same love, being united in spirit, thinking on one purpose, doing nothing from selfish ambition or vainglory, but with humility of mind, regarding one another as more important than yourselves, not merely looking out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. And so right here in the same letter, as he calls Yodia and Syntyche to think the same way in the Lord, here's application of how they are to do that here in chapter 2, in verses 2 to 4. That's how they are to think the same way in the Lord, thinking of others, thinking of one another as more important than themselves. And this is something, just as a minister, I try all the time, especially when I was a chaplain and most of that ministry was interpersonal. And I'd be relating with somebody and, and talking with them and just trying to be patient and constantly having to tell myself, this person's more important than myself, as thoughts of all the things that I want to do in the moment or have to do or things on my task list, and the, the conversation is going on and on and on, and I have to continually remind myself they are more important than me, and I need to listen to them. And, and that's how we are to pr- approach one another, that everyone is more important than you. And this is how Yodia and Syntyche should have approached one another to hear one another out so that they could settle this dispute because we are all commanded to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. It's interesting, as I was studying this passage, I I came across in um, what something that Dr. Will Varner wrote in his commentary, and it's, one of the main commentaries I use uh, for studying this this book. Um, But he wrote something that's very interesting. He said, The dominance of phronean, this word, this Greek word, 
uh, for think. He says the dominance of this language continues to convey the main theme of the book, to think in unity. And he, he marks some verses where, where this same language is used, the same term is used. First, and I'd like you to look at this, first in verse 7 of chapter 1, where he says, For it is only right for me to think this way about you all, to think this way about you all, talking about um, their faith and their fellowship in the gospel, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. As he says, it's only right for me to think this way about you all. And then in verse 2 of chapter 2, fulfill my joy that you think the same way, focused on Christ being one in the Spirit, uh, uh, having the fellowship of the Spirit, think the same way. Verse 5 of chapter 2, have this way of thinking in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. We were to think as he thought about others. In verse 15 of chapter 3, let us therefore as many as are perfect think this way. The, the way of pressing on toward the goal of the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. To be like Christ in every way. To think the same way. To that, because we are being conformed into his image. And then here in verse 2, I urge Yodia and I urge Syntyche to think the same way in the Lord. And then lastly in verse 10 of chapter 4, he says, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at last you have revived thinking about me. Indeed, you were thinking about me before, but you lacked opportunity. Talking about their gift, their support for him that they are thinking of him as more important than themselves. This is how they are to think. This is how Yodia and Syntyche are to think towards one another and how we are to think towards one another. Another commentator, he writes this, he says, and this short statement is interesting. He says, personal conflict is possible for people in Christ only when they have lost the mind of Christ. The personal conflict is possible for people in Christ only when they have lost the mind of Christ. If we have conflict with one another and we're both in Christ, it's because we've lost the mind of Christ. We're not thinking the same way as Christ. We're not thinking in a Christ-like manner. And so that's why we have conflict. That doesn't mean that we won't have disagreements. There's a way to disagree, and that's part of growing in maturity, is knowing how to disagree with another believer, whether it's in terms of doctrine, which <laughs> that's probably the main area in which we just... And if you're on social media, you see it all the time, disagreements in doctrine. And when it comes to disagreements in doctrine... The, the truth of the matter is, more often than not, that someone's right and somebody's wrong, and, and the way to settle that is by doctrine. But how you disagree, you're to disagree in a Christ-like manner. You speak the truth in love. But then there's probably the, the second most evident disagreement um, besides doctrine is methodology or how we work out our doctrine, how we uh, Christian living, Christian practice, how we go about the practice of ministry. But if there's conflict, if we can't disagree in a Christ-like manner, then we have, in a sense, lost the mind of Christ. And so Paul exhorts Yodia and Syntyche to agree in the Lord, to think the same way in the Lord. And he uses these, it's interesting, because he uses the same verb twice. I urge Yodia, and then I urge Syntyche. And this, this verb, of parakaleo, of calling alongside somebody, exhorting them, uh, a strong urging, calling alongside of them. Yodia, get along. Syntyche, get along. Think the same way in the Lord. Think according to the Lord's thoughts. So we have here in these verses, we have Paul's first exhortation for corporate perseverance, his second exhortation for interpersonal unity, and then third, we have his exhortation for genuine fellowship. For genuine fellowship. 
Verse 3, indeed, I ask you also, genuine companion, help these women who have contended together alongside of me in the gospel with also Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. There's this exhortation for genuine fellowship as he calls a person, the genuine companion, to help these women. That, that this disagreement or this disunity um, is not just affecting them, but it's affecting the whole body. And so because it's affecting the whole body, I'm asking the body to help uh, restore them to fellowship. And so he has this third exhortation for genuine fellowship, which is twofold. First, his exhortation is to restore this genuine fellowship, to restore it, and then second, to steward it, to maintain it. And so he calls upon this person, genuine companion, to restore the fellowship between these individuals. And it's interesting that he says this genuine companion because he started off these, the, this instruction in verse 1 uh, with the plural, my brothers, and so he's speaking to the whole church and my beloved, and then he's talking about Yodi and Syntyche, and then now he asks uh, my genuine companion, singular, this person. And it's interesting because in the, in the Greek, this, this term, it, it could be translated as, and especially in that day, yoke fellow. This means a, a person that's yoked alongside you you know in, in um, all throughout the old testament and even the new testament we have this picture of being yoked and even paul talks about the unmarried that they shall not be unequally yoked with a, a believer with an unbeliever that you will to be there's to be you're to equally yoke uh animals in the old testament um, that they would work together with the same strength and the strength, same ability and so there's this, this sense, this word of a yoke fellow, someone that's yoked with somebody else, help these women. One commentator writes that the Greek word pictures two oxen in a yoke pulling the same load. A companion is a partner or an equal in a specific endeavor. In this case, a spiritual one. It is possible that this individual is unnamed, but it's best to take the Greek word translated companion as a proper name, this word syzygous. And that's quite possibly what he's talking to. He, he's naming him. Uh, we don't see it in English, but in the Greek it, it's, hey, you, syzygous, which means yoke fellow or genuine companion. I want you, syzygous, to help these two women. It's similar to uh, Onesimus which his name means useful. The, the slave Onesimus, in, in Paul's letter to Philemon, as he talks about Onesimus, whose name is useful, he, he says, he was useless to you, but now he is useful. And so there was names like that in the Greco-Roman world, and we have, sometimes we, have, we see names like that that mean something else, but he's in a sense pointing him out and he's saying, live up to your name. Syzygous, you're, you're, you know, your name is Yokefellow, so be a Yokefellow and help these women. Help them. Help them to restore fellowship between one another. Help them uh, to restore fellowship uh, amongst the whole church as this uh, is affecting the whole church. There's a command, a similar command. He tells the Galatians. Uh, in, in Galatians chapter 6, and, and this is, this is a, a <clears throat> primary verse that, that alludes to just the principle and practice of biblical counseling, of counseling one another. Galatians 6, 1, as he, Paul talk, talks to Galatians, and throughout that whole letter he's refuting legalism and, and promoting the true gospel. He says, brothers, even if anyone is caught in any transgression." You who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, each of you looking to yourself so that you too will not be tempted. 
So those that are caught in a transgression, those that are caught in sin, those that are struggling with a besetting sin or any sort of sin, he's saying, you who are spiritual, the spiritual one, the mature one, is to come alongside and to help restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, understanding that you could also fall as well, that you could also be tempted into the same sins that they are. And so Paul is calling Syzygos, uh, this yoke fellow, to help these two women, to restore them to fellowship, fellowship with one another, but then also because he's brought into uh, the situation, fellowship amongst uh, one another in the church, the whole church, and, and, and maybe even groups within the church. Because as any organization gets, grows in number, it kind of splinters. And sometimes it, it splinters along lines of background, along lines of ethnicity, along lines of career, of gender, or, or of um, opinions, or hobbies, or whatever it may be. It's just as a group, any organization gets so big, it's, it's hard, it gets harder and harder to maintain unity and fellowship. And so there might be a sense that, that people started to align themselves with either Yodia or Syntyche. I, I think Yodia is right. No, I think Syntyche is right. And so it could call, spill over and cause division within the whole church. And so as Paul calls Syzygos to restore fellowship, genuine fellowship, he's also thinking of the fellowship of the whole church and the, the, not only the fellowship of the whole church, but the holiness and the effectiveness of the whole church because as he calls him to help these women who have contended together alongside of me in the gospel with also Clement and the rest of my fellow workers, there's this sense that I, I, I want them to, to go back to the way they were that they were effective, they were working aside, alongside of me, and they were working alongside of the rest of my fellow workers. And Clement as well, which we don't know too much, he just names them, it's just off the cuff, it doesn't, you know, he just names them, probably, he was probably um, a really mature, solid, uh, hard-working uh, Christian, he, he was probably a prime example of what a believer should be. That's probably why he names them, that be like Clement. But restore them to fellowship. And then the second part of Paul's exhortation for genuine fellowship is to steward it, to maintain it. To maintain it because the, for the sake of the church, for the sake of its witness, for the sake of the effectiveness for the gospel, that, that you would all, in a sense, be yoke fellows. That you would all be, in a sense, like Syzygos, like Clement, that you'd be fellow workers, that you would steward this fellowship, this genuine fellowships, as also recipients of eternal life. As he ends this exhortation and, and, and the previous exhortations with this phrase, whose names are in the book of life. This reminder that your names are written in the book of life. If you are in Christ, your names are written in the book of life. You are citizens of heaven, so act like it. Think on that. Think of what the, the, the Lord has done for you. That, that if your name is written in the book of life, it cannot be blotted out. It's there. One commentator, he writes this. He says, the precise phrase, book of life, occurs two other times in Scripture. In Revelation 3.5 and Revelation 20.15. But the concept is a rich theme throughout Scripture. We, we see, in a sense, it alluded to in Exodus, as Moses says this, right after the, the people have made uh, the golden calf, in Exodus 32, Moses returns to the mountain, to Yahweh, and says, Alas, this people has committed a great sin, and they have made gods of gold for themselves. But now, if you will forgive their sin, but if not, please blot me out from your book which you have written. It's almost as if Moses is, is willing to lay down his life or sacrifice himself, or, or, or even as Paul says in, in Romans uh, 11, that he, he wishes himself accursed for the sake of his brothers. 
We also see this, this phrase in Daniel chapter 12. And it, it, it talks about the, the end times, and it says, Now at that time, right after the, the, the great tribulation, Michael, the great prince who stands guard over the sons of your people, will stand. And there will be a time of distress such as never happened since there was a nation until that time. And at that time, your people, everyone who is found written in the book, will be rescued. If you are in the Lord, your name is written in a book. He has a book. He has a record of your name. It's this commentary. He goes on. He says, as those Paul had alluded to Daniel 12 and Philippians 2.15 as those whose names are in the book of life together. He goes on, he says, Yodia and Syntyche should be shining for the Lord together, not disputing with each other. It's one thing to remind us of our identity that's in Christ and our eternity, that that should compel us in our behavior and our holy living and especially our actions towards one another. That, as the Bible continually says, there's only two types of people in this world. Those who are in Christ and those who are not. Those who are in the kingdom of God and those who are in the kingdom of Satan. Those who are in the light and those who are in darkness. And those whose names are written in the book of life and those who are not. It's a terrifying thing. It's a serious thing. We read how serious it is in Revelation 20 where John explains this judgment to come. This judgment that will come to all peoples. When He says in Revelation 20 and verse 11, Then I saw a great white throne and him who sits upon it from whose presence earth and heaven fled away and no place was found for them. Then I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne and books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their deeds. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it. And death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them. And they were judged, every one of them, according to their deeds. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Most important thing for you is to have your name written in the book of life and to know that it is. Because as Solomon said, God will bring every act into judgment. And as Jesus said, he will judge you for every careless word, for your thoughts Deeds, actions, attitudes, motives. You will be judged. And that judgment takes place in one of two places, either at the cross, as Christ bears the sins of his people for all those who would repent and believe upon him, those whose names are written in the book of life, or that judgment will take place in hell forever as people bear the punishment which their sins deserve forever. And not only do they bear the punishment for the sins that they have committed, but they bear the punishment of the sins that they continue to commit in hell. And so it's important to understand what side you fall on. Have you repented and believed? Have you understood that there is a judgment for every single person and no one will escape? Every sin will be judged. And the only way that you can not bear that judgment for yourself is if Christ bears it for you in his body on the tree. And that judgment is born through repentance and faith that he has borne that judgment for his people, for all who would believe upon him and seek him while he may be found. And so uh, if you wonder whether or not your name is written in the book of life, you ask yourself, have I repented? Have I believed? Have I sought him while he may be found? Do I know him? Do I desire to know him? Do I want to know him? Do I hate the sins that I once loved and love 
the, the holiness and the righteousness that I once hated? Do I desire him? And so we are called to examine ourselves to see if, whether or not we are in the faith. And also, for those of us who have been in the faith a long time, maybe we grew up in church and, and, and maybe we, are, we truly are born again. We truly are a true believer. We're, we're not to uh, rejoice in our knowledge or our experience or our works, or our heritage, we are to rejoice in the Lord, and we are to stand firm in the Lord, and we are to hope in the Lord. Even as Jesus tells his disciples, as they return from, after, uh, in a sense, casting out demons and healing people and proclaiming the gospel, and he calls them, he says, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are recorded in heaven. And if our names are recorded in heaven, then there's no reason for us to have petty disputes with one another or to be caught up in the things of this world because the most important thing about us, the most important thing for us has been settled that our names are written in the book of life. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this passage. We thank you for these exhortations. Help us to consider them. Help us to apply them to our lives. And please help us to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which we have been called. In Jesus' holy name we pray. Amen. Right for a closing hymn.